listening to right where you are sitting now. Hi there, welcome to episode 28. That was a long week, Kim. Uh, a, m- a month-shaped week. Yeah, it was kind of, it's just one of those weeks, you know, it's one of, it seems to go on for ages, you know. <laughs> and uh, we've, all, we've all had long weeks. If you're listening to these consecutively, <laughs> we also don't have Ivan staying on the show this week, he's on the show next week, so I, I messed that up, I got my guests in the wrong order. But yeah, we are back, um, I hope a bit more regularly now, so I, I hope a week will be more seven days-ish than uh, 30 odd days-ish, whatever it was since we last did this. But uh, yeah, I'm Kenny Kins. Joining me in the uh, sitting now hot seat is Kim Monaghan. How have you been, Kim? All right. Very well. Uh, between all right and very well. I'm not sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think. I'm on holiday, actually. Um, my, my beloved uh, wife and child have gone away for a week of camping in some of the worst weather we've seen in years. And I've got the house to myself. So after four days of no human contact, uh, drinking only tea, <laughs> eating only cake, I'm starting to feel a bit disorientated, but I think in a good way. <laughs> <laughs> so have you uh, just been watching daytime television, in other words? Or? Um, no, I've mostly been um, playing computer games obsessively once I wake up at about midday. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds... And eating a lot of oven food. <laughs> That sounds familiar. I can't think where I've heard that before. But anyway, um, yeah, so we are back now, and um, I, just, I had to have a break because I do a lot of stuff. As if you read the about section of the site, you'll see. And uh, but yeah, no, it's good. We're back, uh, and we've got a really good guest this week. But before we um, go on to that, we'll have some great adverts. Eerie Radio, opening the door to the unknown. Listener feedback. Really looking forward to the new episodes, so keep up with your work, guys. Thanks. Interviews. There's so many movies, so many documentaries, even books that come out that have factual information in it that maybe, you know, this is a gradual way of, of kind of educating the public to understand what's going on. Visit Erie Radio at www.erieradio.com. Excuse me, I've got some information I'd like to share with you. Did you know that 26 billion pickles are packed each year in the U.S.? That's about 9 pounds of pickles per person. More than half the cucumbers grown in the U.S. are made into pickles. Hey, pickle boy, let's talk pickles. The Podcast Pickle, that is. The Podcast Pickle is your resource for all the latest and greatest podcasts found in cyberspace with thousands of podcasts listed and more added every day. Here's some of the podcasts that you'll find at podcastpickle.com. <laughs> Geek Foo Action Grip. Beachcast. Comic Geek Speak. Speechless. Mad Cane. This Week in Tech. Warren Town Talk. NASCAR Zone. Shelly the Republican. A voice from Eden. Jimmy McBean. Five Minutes with Wichita. Cinema Playground. Offbeat. The Logo Factory. The Exit 50. This and That with Jeff and Pat. Thoughts on Psychiatry. Web Hosting Show. Merlin from Berlin. Random Cast. Jazz with Tiger. American Road Trip Show. The Drew M Podcast. The Slam Idol Podcast. Forgotten Tales. The Zencast. XboxStation.net. How to Do Stuff. <laughs> Now, Pickle has a whole new meaning. PodcastPickle.com, the world's best podcast directory. Where do we get those adverts from, Ken? Um, the best. Yeah, I know. It's, you know, we're just lucky. Lucky like that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> as, uh, as adverts go, you know, they're, they're, like I said before, they're, they're pretty good, you know. You know, we try to keep the quality up on the show, and even the adverts have to be good. But yeah, you know, 
<laughs> well, I've got my fingers crossed for McDonald's personally. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like some of their money, that's for sure. But uh, anyway, um, so this week's guest is the amazing Rodney Orpheus. Uh, and this is the first interview you've actually sat in on and been a part of, isn't it? I think. A very quiet part of it, yes, because I was... Um, thumbing through my lexicon of <laughs> magical vocabulary while you two were talking yeah. but it was it was a it was a very very good interview um he's a great guy yeah um we'll talk a little bit more about some of the later conversations we had with him as well because we completely really didn't interview him about another quite impressive part of his life but uh, um but yeah t- today we're looking at <clears throat> uh infamous occultist uh, alistair crowley um and looking at some of the kind of magical organizations he was involved with uh, including the oto and the aa it's a shame we should have done probably ages ago really thinking about it but yeah we, we had to wait until we got a top quality guest on to talk about it um and we did and yeah so this is our interview of rodney orpheus i hope you enjoy it and we'll see you after after that Rodney Orpheus, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, could you uh, give us a brief biography of yourself, please? A brief biography. Um, I was born in Northern Ireland in a little tiny, tiny town called Moneymore, which no one has ever heard of, and rightly so. <laughs> um, lived there for the first few years of my life. Uh, well, then moved to England, uh, to, in Leeds in England, uh, when I was my late teens, early 20s. Uh, started a band called the Cassandra Complex, um, made a couple of cult hits, um, moved to Germany, um, toured all over the world, uh, joined the OTO, uh, wrote a book called Abrahadabra, Beginner's Guide to Thalamic Magic, um, produced a bunch of other bands, uh, uh, played a lot of computer games. <laughs> oh, we can join you on that one, definitely. We've we've we've, we've got a left for dead uh, addiction. And, and wrote wrote a few computer games as well. I understand. Uh, yeah, that, that too. Ah. No, that, no, no. I actually lecture in college in computer game design. Oh, excellent. That's cool. So um, today we kind of want to talk about Alistair Crowley, um, someone we've mentioned, um, he sort of pops up on all loads of our shows, but we've never really kind of done a show about him, so I thought now was the time and you were the person to talk to you about it. And um, But I'd like to start off by asking you, what kind of got you into the occult generally? What what, what was uh, what was the draw? I When I was uh, in my early teens, I found a book on occultism, a, a book called Magic and Occult Primer by David Conway. I found it in the library when I think I was about 14 years old and read it and thought, this is amazing, it can't possibly work. <laughs> so being a, a, a scientific geek that I was, I decided that the only way to find out if it could be true or not was to test it and see. So I did, and it worked. So I thought, okay, uh, now I need to find out why it works and how it works. So I started uh, reading everything I could find and uh, from lots of different authors. Uh, quite rapidly discovered Alistair Crowley and um, was really impressed by his ability to analyze 
the essence of what was going on and to synthesize uh, various different religious, spiritual, magical, whatever you want to call it, currents. And, uh, you know, started studying Crowley's thalamic system uh, more prominently than the others. Um, but, uh, yeah, and, and everything else since then. I've also studied uh, voodoo and Santeria, a lot of different uh, Western esotericism, Buddhism, Taoism, you name it, I'll try it um, at least once. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you'll go back depending on the results, I guess. But uh, <laughs> yes, um, precisely. So we, we want to talk to you today about Alistair Crowley. I mean, it's very hard to read anything about the occult these days, um, or you know, particularly magic, without hearing the name Alistair Crowley. But mm-hmm. I mean, uh, who who is Alistair Crowley? I mean, could, could you give us a a less brief, I guess, a biography of Crowley? And uh, okay, mm. um, Crowley was born in 1875 in England uh, to a f- incredibly fundamentalist uh, bunch of Christian lunatics um, but f- fairly well off young man I mean his family were uh, big in the brewing business uh, so then he proceeded to spend most of his young life working his way through their money while experimenting with various different uh, religious systems uh, writing an awful lot of mostly very bad poetry <laughs> and um, and having sex with as many male and female persons that he could find uh, on 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 the way, um, that's that's a slightly less brief biography. Uh, <laughs> to the average student life there, then. <laughs> yeah, pretty much average student life, but to even more excess. Hmm. Um, so, uh, and then uh, I think the the big the big turning point in Crowley's life, I guess, was when he joined the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn in London uh, around the turn of the century Mm. and uh, was very, very heavily influenced by their magical initiatory system. Um, Although he didn't actually stay in the Golden Dawn for very long, uh, just a few years, it had an extremely potent effect uh, on his psyche, as a good initiatory system should. Mm. And... um, and that launched him on the path of, uh, of the magical path that he is best known for today. That and also mountaineering, I believe. <laughs> oh, well, he was an excellent mountaineer, a uh, tremendous mountaineer, um, uh, one of the best of his generation. I mean, it's interesting if you go into mountaineering circles, um, he's kind of, he has the same kind of reputation in mountaineering circles that he has in weird occult circles, in that he was this strange, incredibly talented maverick guy who scaled mountains all the wrong way and was incredibly scathing about everyone else um, who was mountaineering at the time and it's quite funny in mountaineering circles now he's getting his his reputation is uh, coming back in the same way that his reputation in the literary and magical world is coming back too mm. um, for many years he was basically written out of the mountaineering history books so and now he, a lot of young mountaineers are going hey that guy Crowley really uh, he was a hell of a mountaineer yeah. um, but he, f- he also uh, one of his great uh, if you like spiritual teachers if you like was, a, was another mountaineer who taught him concentration who taught him uh, the power of the mind Whereas a lot of occultists back then and still today um, 
are very woolly in their thinking. Hmm. Um, Crowley had an interesting, you know, he was getting heavily into occultism and talking about it all the time, but it was his main mountaineering partner, Eckenstein, who, um, who taught him to stop just accepting everything and actually starting to scientifically analyze things and concentrate his mind and begin to understand and perceive what's really going on. Hmm. And I think that led to Crowley's interest uh, very much in a lot of um, meditational systems, uh, along with another friend of his from the Golden Dawn, Alan Bennett. Hmm. Alan Bennett was one of the top Golden Dawn adepts who was the first Westerner to become a Buddhist monk. Uh, in fact, Alan Bennett started the Buddhist society uh, in the West. Um, and Crowley spent a lot of time with Alan Bennett in Salon learning how to meditate and learning Buddhist Hindu yoga techniques mm. and so on. So to me, one of the primary uh, facets of Crowley's life and work is the fact that he was very much a synthesist. He was able to take uh, currents from lots of different cultures and lots of different backgrounds and synthesize them into a very modern uh, system that distills the best of other spiritual systems. And other people have tried that, usually with abysmal results, mm. um, but Crowley managed to do it very successfully. Yeah, and would you say he drew some influence in that from the Golden Dawn? Because that's kind of what they did as well, isn't it? They sort of yeah, I, I, possibly, yeah. I mean, the Golden Dawn did try and draw a lot of uh, things, but they mainly concentrated on various Western esoteric techniques. I mean, most of the Golden Dawn's work comes from Eliphas Levy, uh, various Freemasonic influences, and uh, Dee and Kelly's Enochian system all of which is very Western European in approach. Um, I don't think the Golden Dawn were particularly good synthesis in that, in that way. They didn't really have, uh, and in fact, considering that, I mean, the first sort of attempt to synthesize Western Eastern thought was the Theosophical Society, Madame mm. Blavatsky, um, which started in 1875. And the Theosophical Society had already been running for, you know, a good 20 years before the Golden Dawn started. So, the, I wouldn't consider the Golden Dawn to be particularly good at, at bringing in influences beyond the Western. Um, they tried, and I think, I think the Golden Dawn was more of a reaction to the Theosophical Society's emphasis on Hindu and Buddhist teaching. Hmm. Um, I mean, of course, you know, the ultimate synthetic and magical order was the OTO, and is the OTO, hmm. uh, which started... Um, primarily you know, the order of the Temple of the East or the order of Oriental Templars, whichever way you want to put it. I mean, the whole point of the OTO was from the beginning to synthesize Western uh, alchemical and, and Masonic techniques with Eastern yogic and, and mystical techniques, hmm. uh, which I think it did very successfully and continues to do. Yeah, I will come back to the OTO a bit later on because we want to talk to you about uh, them in particular. Okay. Um, but I think one thing about Crowley is there's certain, especially within his magical career, there's certainly um, sort of chapters, I'd say, in his life. And mm. um, the, I'd, one of the big, obviously, after the Golden Dawn, uh, well, actually, probably still during the Golden Dawn, um, he moved to Beleskine House. And one of the, the rituals you often hear mentioned when people you know, refer to Crowley is the Abramellum operation. Could you talk to us a bit mm -hmm. about that? Okay, the Abramellum operation was, uh, it's, it's from a, a medieval 
a very interesting and odd medieval grimoire, um, which is about basically it uh, gives you instructions for undergoing you know a retreat for a space of approximately six months, where you go live fairly in fairly a fair amount of isolation. Although admittedly, being medieval, you live in isolation with your servants. Um, but uh, and the idea is that through prayer and meditation over a long period of time, you would attain the knowledge of and conversation with your holy guardian angel. Uh, now, the holy guardian angel was uh, an, an angel, an angelic being, specifically uh, designed to look after you and to give you information and help you achieve your magical purpose. And once you had achieved that, the knowledge of that guardian angel and the conversation with him, that guardian angel would be would help you command various spirits and perform, uh, you know, really empower your magic and help you understand uh, what your true will and true nature was. All right, interesting. And um, it, there's a lot of rumor about uh, the uh, Abramelum operation and Beleskin and. Uh, some of the, uh, the rumors include that uh, Crowley didn't finish the operation, and you know spirits still roam the house. You, there's all these legends you hear. Um, yeah, well, I mean, Crowley, Crowley, as far as I recall, originally bought the house to do the Abermellon operation in because he figured that Scotland was pretty remote. You know, Loch Ness was a pretty remote area to be in. Um, but in the end, he actually completed it on a pilgrimage across China. He rode across China on a donkey, and uh, did it then instead. Um, Partly through falling off the donkey on his head, um, <laughs> which uh, you know leads to a whole different kettle of fish. But um, but that's uh, apparently when he finally finished this operation and became aware of his holy guardian angel, who was called Iwas, A I W A S S is the conventional spelling of which, who plays an important part in Crowley's life later. Yeah, I mean, this is where I was going to come to next, actually, is uh, he married a lady called Rose, didn't he? And they, on mm-hmm. his honeymoon, moved to Egypt. Uh, didn't move to Egypt, went to Egypt, rather. Um, and uh, this is where what, what's considered by, especially, you know, uh, Thelemites uh, as the kind of pivotal moment in Crowley's uh, magical career, really. Uh, could well, you just, Oh, go yeah. on. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, Rose, uh, when they were staying in Egypt, uh, Rose started... Um, she was not interested in magic or the occult at all, according to Crowley. Um, but when they were in Egypt, she started uh, receiving messages from uh, Egyptian gods, um, telling Crowley that they were waiting for him. And uh, he kind of poo-pooed the idea that some you know, woman could possibly, you know, who was untrained in all the deep uh, intellectual magic that he was into could possibly make contact with some uh, divine beings. So he wasn't too convinced by this. Um, so he took her to the Cairo Museum uh, to to point out, you know, these gods. And she said it was Horus. And she pointed out this uh, this stele, this Egyptian uh, 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 painting with a picture of Horus on it and said that, you know, Horus wanted him to con- Crowley to contact him and so on. So Crowley sat down and performed a, a ritual with Rose um, to use her scrying to get deeper contact and eventually received messages about how we should go into a room at, at midday every day for three days and uh, he would write a book 
the message would be given to him and transmitted through him, and he would write a book. And that book uh, became what's called the Book of the Law, Libra Alva Legis, to give its Latin title. And the Book of the Law is the Thalamic, the main uh, spiritual guide book of Thalema, uh, which he was transmitted uh, through him ostensibly by his holy guardian angel Iwas uh, over three hours, April 8th, 9th and 10th in 1904. Prodi didn't actually accept the book, really, did he? He, sort of he hated it. it because it um, it had a, a lot of the symbolism were things that he felt quite uncomfortable with and a lot of the messages he felt very uncomfortable, especially the third chapter, which is a chapter which is extremely violent um, not that I don't think that was particularly the thing that that upset him, but um, there were th you know there were a lot of references to um, changing magical formulas, and uh, that he found very difficult to accept. That actually um, contradicted what he had learned in the Golden Dawn, and I think he found that very difficult to accept at first, um, because the the book gave out a very different conception of morality, of how um, people should think about themselves and about the gods, or if you want to call them that, and about how they should approach life. And Crowley was very much a, you know, a Victorian. Um, he uh, he's very much an upper middle class Victorian Englishman, and uh, he found a lot of the things in that book quite attacked his mentality, attacked his preconceptions. So it took him many years before he even himself would accept that this was a, such an important document. I mean, these days, a lot of people read it and go, well, hell, yeah, of course. Um, but the world has changed a lot in the last 105 years. After this happened, uh, there's a sort of misty period between when the, the book of the law being received and Crowley um, really kind of adopting it. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the period between those two events? Yeah, I mean, Crowley, for, for I mean, the Golden Dawn kind of uh, split up into a lot of different factions. Uh, Crowley got kind of caught in the middle of a of a, a lot of hoo-ha, got a bit pissed off with it, started getting much more into yoga and meditational stuff, kind of gave up uh, Western esoteric techniques for a long time. Um, he then started his own sort of Golden Dawn spin-off, which pretty much everybody in the Golden Dawn started their own little spin-off. He started a spin-off, which uh, he called, uh, with, along with a, one of his partners, George Cecil Jones, uh, which they called the AA, um, not Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, <laughs> or the Automobile Association. Um, but uh, he started an organization called the A, which was kind of similar to the Golden Dawn in some ways. It used Golden Dawn uh, degrees, for example, um, but it was much more oriented towards um, solo meditational work and magical practices uh, that he was taking from his yoga practices. Mm. Um, and and then he also started uh, working on uh, the Equinox, which was an enormous journal of magic, which he spent huge amounts of money on, um, but produced these wonderfully huge, massive encyclopedias of the occult, if you like, 
um, over the next few years, and which they, was very, very influential set of books. They they continue to go on to this day, don't they? I've, yeah, volume four, number one, and volume four, number two, both of which are tr- exceptionally good. Yeah, so the Equinox is still continuing under the auspices of the OTO and the AA to this day, and Logmate continue to do so. Uh, they're they're really essential works of to anyone who's interested in Western esotericism. Obviously, during this period where he's writing the Equinox, and interestingly, he self-funded them, didn't he himself? I believe. Yeah, I mean, because nobody wanted to buy them, <laughs> and and he he didn't he didn't you know cheapen out. He didn't do like cheap paperback editions. They were all you know beautiful, gorgeously created hardback editions, and he printed lots of them, and no one bought them. Um, because you know, by this stage, everyone just thought he was, you know, well, nobody even thought about much about him. So he was putting out these books that a very, very, very few people got hold of, mm. and uh, effectively working his way through his inheritance at a very rapid pace. Mm. So this is a bit of a grey area for me now. I can never remember if Chefalu happened before Crowley adopted the Book of the Law or after. Um, oh, definitely after. Yeah. Okay. Um, Could you talk a bit yeah, about? I mean, the, what, how, yeah, I mean. Uh, the, the, the Crowley eventually started. I mean, he, he actually lost the manuscript of the Book of the Law. He left it. In, he, he stuck it in the attic, as you do in a box somewhere, <laughs> and found it. I think when he he was going on a skiing holiday and went up to the attic to find his skis, and you know, as you do, find a box with some crap in it and uh, open up the box, and there was the manuscript of the Book of the Law, um, uh, which. Oddly enough, a hundred years later, would get lost and found again in a very similar way. But that's another story. Um, and he looked at it, sat up in the attic and looked at it and went, wow, this is actually kind of cool. And, uh, you know, really started to get behind what the message was. It became the, effectively became a thelemite um, from reading it as as from an outsider perspective, which I think is very interesting. Hmm. And uh, so he started getting much more interested in the messages given there. And he actually started uh, transmitting some other, uh, what are called the holy books of Thelema, um, books like um, the Book of the Heart Girt with the Serpent and uh, Liber Ararita and various other lesser known um, mystical writings of Crowley, but still extremely important and very beautiful works. Mm. Uh, so uh, he was doing that in sort of, uh, yeah, around 1907, 1908, 1909. The next big breakthrough in his life came around about 1912 when he met Theodore Royce, um, who was a, a German occultist. And uh, the two of them, between them, uh, activated Ordo Templi Orientis, OTO. And that was a very, very important part of his life. Um, he, Royce introduced Crowley to a whole different way of looking at magic and a whole different way of looking at magical orders. Um, and Crowley, over the next few years, from around 1912 uh, up to about you know the start of the First World War, spent a lot of time working on OTO rituals, uh, initiation rituals, uh, the Gnostic Mass, which is one of the most beautiful rituals ever written by the hand of man, in my opinion. But Crowley never actually and saw one, did he? I don't think. Sorry? Did Crowley never actually saw a Gnostic Mass, did he, being performed? Well, that's an, that's an interesting point, yeah. I mean, uh, apparently, no one's, we're not really quite sure. Apparently, at least parts of it were performed by Crowley at Chefalu, but it seems highly likely that he never actually performed the full thing and never actually saw it being performed. It was performed during his lifetime, uh, in the later part of his life, by 
the Agape Lodge in California. Mm. Um, they performed very regularly. But uh, yeah, strangely enough, even though he wrote it, uh, it was kind of like Moses in the Promised Land. You know, he wrote this thing, but never actually got into a situation where it was performing it with any depth or regularity. Mm. So it's quite interesting today. I mean, that that ritual is performed all over the world by OTO bodies uh, many, many, many times every week across the world. Mm. I mean, many OTO bodies perform on a weekly basis now, which mm. is quite remarkable. Yeah, definitely. So, um, what in, what was the uh, the reasoning behind Crowley moving into Chefalu and starting what he termed the Abbey of Philema? Uh, well, I think, yeah, he, uh, well, he basically he ran out of money. Um, I mean, there, there's a couple of other interesting parts of his life that people kind of skip over that I think are very important. I mean, he went to America during mm. the First World War and uh, started working for a German propaganda magazine, writing the most insanely ludicrous, over-the-top propaganda that anyone has ever written. Um, probably, uh, probably actually in the employ of British, the British Secret Service. It, all, it looks very certain now that he was working for the British Secret uh, British intelligence as it was then, and infiltrating uh, German propaganda and writing propaganda that was so ludicrous it was making the Germans look look silly. Um, which, if there was any ever a man who could uh, make any ex- uh, write something extreme enough that people would disbelieve it, it was definitely Alistair Crowley. Um, <laughs> But he also, when he was there, he, I mean, he ran out of money. He ended up starving in a garret. But he, when he was there, he wrote what I consider to be one of his finest, maybe his finest um, uh, magical work, which is Liber Elif. Um, and that was an amazing book. And he wrote that while f- f- basically starving to death in an attic in New York, uh, freezing to death. And uh, it's, a, it's a magnificent piece of work. Um, still, I think, one of the most detailed and... Uh, uh, most lucid um, pieces of work on on Crowley's philosophy anyone's ever uh, that I've ever read. It's a beautiful mm. book. Yeah. Um, but then after that, he ended up coming back to Europe, and I think he went to Sicily because it was warm and it was cheap, and uh, set up an abbey in um, Cefalu, and uh, called the Abbey of Thelema as a kind of because you know the word Thelema originally comes from the French writer uh, Rabelais, mm. who wrote a book called um, uh, Gargantua and Pantagruel, which featured this Abbey of Thelema. And so Crowley tried to recreate this uh, fictional Abbey of Thelema himself. Um, and he stood there for a few years writing a lot of, taking an awful lot of drugs and writing an awful lot of uh, works, writing an awful lot of books, um, and ha- having various Thelemites, the the, the first Thelemites from around the world would come there and stay and you know, sit at the feet of the master and learn how to be great magicians. Yeah, I mean, was that basically... Hopefully. Would you consider that kind of period his AA period then in that respect, or was this when he was uh, OTO-based, as it were? Well, uh, both. Uh, he was running both orders uh, at the same time. I mean, he, he was working with both orders at the same time. Mm. Um so uh, uh, he was he was d- doing very much of both. It depended what people were doing. He, you know, a lo- most of the early Thelemites were members of both the AA and the OTO. Mm. Um, but during that period, I mean, because there weren't very, I mean, the OTO, a lot of the OTO work is is very community oriented. 
mm. things like the Gnostic Mass. It, you know, you need five officers even to do it, um, and it was very hard to get five Thelemites in a room back then. Yeah. Uh, it was very, very difficult because um, there were only maybe a few dozen in the entire world and getting around the world back then was a lot harder than it is now. Mm. Um, so most of those early Thelemites, most of the work they were doing was AA-style work because it didn't depend on having a group of people together. No. Okay, so, I mean... The post Chefalu kind of oh actually no uh, sorry just stop that bit again the, at Chefalu the, uh, there were several uh, scandals that uh, I mean Crowley had been in the press before in the UK but no, uh, mm. nothing like this and uh, could you talk a bit about the the kind of uh, the I guess the most major scandal in Crowley's uh, life in terms uh, of the press uh, well, finding finding Crowley's most major scandal is not <laughs> an easy job um, okay the one that got him I dubbed mean, the wickedest man in the world I should say <laughs> yeah I mean you know I mean we're talking here about the, the rise of the tabloid newspaper and Crowley really you know played Crowley played into the hands of the rise of what would become tabloid journalism uh, what was called then yellow journalism, and you know they were they were looking for for people to to write scare stories about, and Crowley played right into their hands, um, especially since a lot of the people who came to visit him were writers or journalists themselves, and uh, and so various lurid stories were being reported in the press in the UK and America about Crowley and ver and but actually not just about Crowley about various other gurus and mystical teachers at the time this was a very common thing back then very very common so it's not like Crowley was like some specially uh, you know was being targeted specially it was a very common thing um, but yeah I mean there was a, one of the biggest occasions was when one of the, the students came to stay who died of dysentery and um, or what seems to be dysentery, and this was reported back in the press in England that he died because of drinking cat's blood during a black magic ritual, yada yada yada. I mean, right, sure. <laughs> um, it was a very unfortunate occurrence that a very, uh, by all accounts, a very promising young man died. But hey, shit happens, you know. Um, and it certainly was not the result of some. Black magic ritual going awry. Yeah. Um, not, not at all. I mean, people die of dysentery all the time, and a lot more of them did back then than do now. Yeah, I mean, it, Sicily was not really a hotbed of uh, medical technology back in the 19, 1920s. <laughs> do you think, I mean, it often seems to me in a way that Crowley kind of enjoyed scandal a little bit, though. He sort of oh, seemed to absolutely. Yeah. I mean, as, uh, I think Oscar Wilde said, the only thing worse than having people talking about you is having people not talking about you. Mm. I mean, Crowley loved publicity. He was he was an egomaniac. He loved it. He absolutely, he, he ate it up. It was great. I mean, he was always sending out press releases and pulling all sorts of bizarre stunts. Like, you know, when he went on holiday in Portugal, he... Uh, he met uh, the famous uh, Portuguese poet Fernando Pessoa, and um, they faked Crowley's suicide and sent. Pessoa was writing press releases to all the papers in uh, in all across Europe about famous English poet and mountaineer Alistair Crowley committing suicide or a mysterious death in in Portugal. Yeah, and you know, of course, Crowley appeared a week later um, and used it as a way to try and sell some books. Yeah, <laughs> it's a, it's a, the famous uh, mountaineering cannibalism story as well, which is always a 
the one you tend to yeah, hear about. Yeah, I mean, there's a million stories like that. And, of course, yeah, Crowley loved him. I mean, of course, half the stories that people know about Crowley never happened at all. I mean, absolutely never happened. A lot of them were made up after his death and came down as, you know, there's a, like... There's a Dennis Wheatley uh, uh, book which has an introduction about Alastair Crowley and uh, talks about how um, Crowley uh, did a ritual with his son McAllister in Paris and both of them were insane and his son was dead in his arms at the next day and Crowley was in a lunatic asylum for six months, etc., etc. Of course, Crowley didn't have a son called McAllister. They never did a ritual in Paris. Crowley never went to a lunatic asylum. But hey, never let a few small facts get in the way of a good story, right? Yeah. <laughs> so um, obviously, uh, you mentioned it earlier. Crowley became a, a user of drugs, I mean, and especially mm. heroin later in his life. Uh, this well, seemed... early early in his life and late in his life. Yeah, because he was um, prescribed. He was originally. As far as I know, it's, was it for asthma or some kind of? Yeah, really yeah. suffered from terrible asthma. I mean, a lot, I mean, heroin. You know, a lot of people don't understand the origin of where heroin came from. Heroin was invented by the Bayer um, pharmaceutical company in Switzerland, uh, the people who make aspirin, um, and it was a medicine. It was originally actually. Do, do, do you actually know what heroin was was originally the medicine for? No, no. It was designed to stop hysteria. Oh right. Because so many Victorian women were suff were suffering hysterics, um, which basically was because they were so sexually frustrated, they would ha they would have fainting spells and and suffer hysterical attacks because they were so sexually frustrated. So the cure for hysteria, and this is I, I'm not making this up, right? The cure for hysteria in in Victorian times was they would go to the doctor and the doctor would stimulate them. To get rid of their hysteria, hmm. right? You can work out <laughs> for yourself that... <laughs> what form that stimulation took. Sounds and... like the plot of some bizarre uh, Victorian pornographic film. <laughs> it's absolutely true. And and then some. A couple of Scottish doctors invented a mechanical um, device to solve this problem, which was how the vibrator was invented. And um, but even then, that was quite cumbersome and difficult, and it was causing doctors loads of trouble. So Bayer invented a drug that would calm women down and stop them having hysteria, and that was heroin. He was, so uh, heroin was originally designed for that, but they, then they found out that one of the things that heroin was very good for was asthma, um, because there was no cure for asthma back then. And Crowley developed really, really bad asthma while mountaineering, mm. a very bad asthma. And so he was prescribed heroin for his asthma originally. And, um, I mean, he took a lot of drugs before that. I mean, he was very into mescaline big time into mescaline and psychedelics because he found that was a very useful way to you know, open the doors of his perception as Adolf Huxley said. I think of actually Crowley who turned Huxley onto mescaline. Um, so he was very interested in using ether, mescaline, various other psychedelics, hashish, in order to attain different states of consciousness because they do. Um, uh, unfortunately, of course, he ended up becoming highly addicted to heroin and ended up having to go cold turkey because no one, you know, it wasn't illegal then. No one knew what the hell to do about heroin. And he, he ended up he had to go cold turkey on it and ended up becoming, actually what most people don't know is that he became extremely anti-drug um, in the mid-period of his life hmm. because he realized how difficult it was. And he wrote a, a, one of his diaries, which is, still is unpublished, but I think the OT was going to publish it soon. Um, I think it's called Lieber... 
Vesta, was it? Um, he wrote a diary of his, of his attempts to give up heroin of his school turkey experiences uh, in a clinic in Fontainebleau in, in France. And it, it's pretty harrowing reading. It's mm. very harrowing. Um, so he actually uh, was, became quite anti-drug in a lot of ways. Yeah. Later in his life, in the last few years of his life, he, became, he, he got a heroin habit again because when he was in his late 60s, uh, his asthma got so bad it was basically going to kill him. So his doctor prescribed heroin because it was the only way to keep him alive. Yeah. He actually so. uh, suggested that he injected it as well, didn't he? Because before, prior to that, I think he was only smoking the heroin, wasn't he? I believe so. Uh, I'm not sure, but I think so. I think that may be the case. Yeah. What I think one of the things I think is very important is that after. I mean, uh, during the 20s, you know, he when he left Sheffield, he started writing Magic and Theory and Practice book ah, four, yeah. which is you know one of his absolute seminal works. I mean, the greatest textbook on magic ever written uh, is Magic and Theory and Practice, and you know that came, a lot of that came about from the work he'd been doing with the early Thelemites and Chefalu. And I think that's a very important book. But another thing I think is really great about it, after writing this book that was really in-depth and after spending years sitting on a rock uh, meditating Chefalu, um, he went to Weimar, Berlin and started hanging out in gay bars with Christopher Isherwood. Mm. So that's my kind of guru, a man who can write the world's greatest textbook on magic and then dress up as a woman and hang out in Berlin gay bars. You know, <laughs> that is my kind of guru. And then go and clock a mountain yeah exactly <laughs> it's a varied life definitely. yeah as well it should be one important thing i often find that's missed out in whenever i listen to podcasts that do uh crowley episodes i suppose is um he meets lady frida harris as well which is quite an important mm. uh encounter uh, I was absolutely you, i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the relationship between the two and you know what they created i guess yeah funny enough i was just writing the wikipedia article about this the other day um yeah, Frida Harris is a very interesting woman. She had been a, a theosophist and co-mason and had gotten very interested in, in the work of Rudolf Steiner. Um, and she had been learning to, to draw and paint using uh, what's, what Steiner called projective geometry. It's a very interesting uh, style of, of uh, projection system. Anyone who, uh, who's, who's an artist might know what I'm talking about when I talk about projection. Um, and she had been introduced to Crowley, and Crowley really wanted to to make a tarot pack. I mean, you've got to understand, in the last few years of his life, Crowley was very aware of his own mortality, mm. very much aware. It's something that becomes very obvious when you read his diaries from this period. Um, he knew that he, you know, during the, you know, the, the 1940s and 1950s, he knew that he was getting on a bit. And he was well past his prime, and he still had lots and lots and lots that he really wanted to do. So there's a, a very much a, you know, he really starts getting down to brass tacks in the last sort of 15 to 20 years of his life. Um, he wrote some excellent works, uh, Little Essays Toward Truth, Eight Lectures on Yoga. Um, he put, he got, he finally put Libra Elephant, which he had written earlier, and he he got together with Lady Frida Harris and said, Look, I really want to do a tarot pack. I'll I'll des I'll write the book. I'll design the cards. And I'll t you know, and you paint them. So the two of them worked together over a very long period of time to design what's now the Crowley Harris Thoth Tarot Deck, which I believe is currently the number one best-selling tarot pack in the world hmm. um, uh, uh, right now. Um, though again, it was never actually published during uh, their lifetimes. 
Um, and their their correspondence between them is is quite funny sometimes because they both drove each other absolutely nuts um, because they're both such in, both of them were incredible perfectionists and uh, so they're always writing backwards. And, you know, sometimes Crowley would have her uh, redraw one of the cards like four or five repaint a card four or five times and if you've seen the detail on these cards you'll know that's an awful lot of work <laughs> yeah um, but they produced this tremendous work of art. I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful tarot pack. Mm. It, it looks beautiful, but also it has more occult wisdom in, in, anyone, in those cards than any all the other tarot packs put together. It just blows all of the others out of the water. Mm. It's, a, it's a major, major piece of work. And, um, and yeah, it's very, very impressive. And the book is fabulous as well. The book that Crowley wrote to accompany the cards is really one of the most in-depth uh, works on tarot we've ever written. It's a great book. Amazing piece of work. Okay, so um, what do you think What do you think it is about Crowley that's sort of survived these years of, uh, since his death? I mean, what is it that's uh, kept him in the public consciousness so much? I mean, he really does turn up all over the place. I mean... Well, yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, well, uh, part, it's partly because, partly because he, he was... You know, so such a publicity hound. He left lots of stuff around, and partly because you know he he wrote a lot of a lot of work. But I think mainly it's because he was such a varied individual. Like we talked earlier, he wrote a lot of poetry, he climbed a lot of mountains, um, painted a lot of pictures, did a tarot pack, the whole nine yards, did a lot of stuff. But having said that, um, I think we were it, we were very much in danger of losing Crowley. Um, he was he was almost a footnote in history. Mm. I, I think the fact that Crowley's work has survived is is a minor miracle. Um, I mean, you know, because you know, after Crowley's death, the OTO uh, went down to. I mean, during the fifties, had maybe a couple of dozen, a few dozen people worldwide. Mm. Um, when the OTO was revived in the nineteen seventies. I think there were someone like four people left in the world mm. who were still in the OTO. Um, most of Crowley's works were out of print. In fact, pretty much all of them were out of print. The only reason why most of the books survived was because he had produced these incredibly expensive, beautiful editions that people had collected and kept, preserved them because they looked beautiful. Bibliophiles had preserved his books. And a lot of his manuscripts were just... Um, a, a guy called Gerald York had put lots of his manuscripts to the Warburg Institute in London and um, Jeff C. Fuller's collection of Crowley's manuscripts were given to, uh, univer uh, to the uh, Arthur Ransom Humanities uh, section of the University of uh, Texas in Austin. So, but a lot of this stuff was very, very close to being lost forever. Um, so it's actually quite remarkable that his work has survived and exploded in the way it has just in the last couple of decades it was like it was the 60s really as well that kind of revived him to a degree. yeah well i think that this the 60s you know because because he was one of the first people to get into psychedelic drugs and in the 60s uh the 60s beat gen you know post-beat generation early hippie generation were looking around for um you know examples of that they could that they could identify with and Crowley was one of those examples, I think, hmm. um, because you know the hippies were looking for an excuse to take drugs and, and have a lot of sex and you know bum around the world. 
And hey, that's what Crowley did. <laughs> he did a hell of a lot of all of those things. Mm. Um, so I, th I think he became very much uh, an, identity, an identity figure to a lot of the early hippies. I mean, I know uh, Timothy Leary. I mean, I had, a, I had a wonderful conversation with Tim once a few years back, just before he died, about Crowley. And, and Tim was very heavily influenced by Crowley. And uh, Tim had read a lot of Crowley's work and uh, really felt himself to be, um, you know, working in, in the, walking in Crowley's footsteps. Mm. Uh, and he said that a couple of times in interviews. And he absolutely was very, uh, very still, even on the, I think it was just a year before he died, we, we spent a lot of time talking about Crowley, and he was very, very uh, enthusiastic about Crowley's work. Mm, I mean, so, that. and a lot of what he had done in the '60s, he freely admitted he had derived straight from Crowley. Yeah, obviously. I mean, a lot of people will also know that he's on the cover of uh, what's it, uh, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Heart Club's band as well. Yeah, I'd, yeah, I think Lennon. Oh no, I think it was Peter um, Blake who put that in there. I'm not even sure the Beatles knew who the hell he was, but. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, Peter Blake did that cover, wasn't it Peter Blake? Yeah, yeah I think yeah. he was He was responsible. I'm not sure uh, whose idea it was, but yeah, he was in there. But actually, I don't think at the time most people paid much attention to that. No. Um, it, was just, it was just another bald guy in the back of the picture. Um, <laughs> I could be wrong. Um, but of course, I mean, Kenneth Anger uh, did a lot to um, bring Crowley's reputation back. But then, uh, you know, uh, the art artistic and intelligentsia. I mean, Kenneth Anger's work, Kenneth was very much involved uh, with Crowley, very heavily influenced by Crowley. And Lucifer Rising is a, an amazing piece of work, hmm. um, which basically tells the story of, uh, of, the, of Thalema coming into the world and of, the, of a new aeon of uh, Horus dawning. And he does it uh, in a very symbolic and pictorial manner, but in a very vibrant and powerful manner I'll say doesn't it star uh, Crowley connoisseur Jimmy Page as well um, is that Lucifer Rising? absolutely I mean yeah I mean yeah I mean uh, Page is in well he doesn't star in it but he's in it for a few seconds but it certainly is obviously Jimmy Page and uh, Page wrote the original soundtrack for it which didn't actually get used in the end unfortunately mm, they fell uh, out but it's a end. great piece of work I don't know if you've ever heard Page's soundtrack for Lucifer Rising but it's it's a magnificent piece of music. No, I've not heard it. He's quite the collector, though, isn't he? He's, I think, doesn't he have the largest Crowley collection in the world now, I think? So I'm told, yeah. I mean, he can afford it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, uh, Paige, I mean, I've never met Jimmy, but from what I hear from mutual acquaintances, shall we say, he is very, very definitely, uh, you know, a very strong Thalamite, a very serious student of Crowley's works, and, and good on him. So, I mean, we've we've spoken about Thelemites and Thelema and the OTO and the AA. I mean, what what is it to be a Thelemite? Would you say? And then you know, what is Thelema nowadays in, in modern that's, modern time? That's a really interesting question. I mean, uh, trying to define what a Thelemite is is it's kind of like you know trying to hold water in your hands. Um, uh, you know, the thing about Thelema. It's about the it's about individual will, um, you know. It's do what thou wilt should be the whole of the law. It's about each person having the right to make their own choices, to make their own moral uh, decisions. And so, defining somebody else as a thelemite is is 
effectively impossible because it's not up to me to say how you should do things. I mean, I think one of the things that I'm, it's very important to me is that people, I think, get the term do what thou wilt very wrong because most people think that's all about, if, so, if I say to you, do what thou wilt should be the whole of the law, most people would assume that that's me being very egotistic. But if you actually listen to what I'm saying, if I say to you, do what you will, right? By definition, I'm saying that you have the right to do your will. It's not about me saying I have the right. It's about a mutually understood system. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I say to you, do what you will. That's the whole of the law. Your will is tantamount. And you return to me, love is the law, love under will. Why is it love? Because once you accept that and acknowledge that and pass the same back to me, then we are united in the sense that we are both mutually respecting each other's boundaries. Mm. Yeah. Right? So, so anyone who accepts that to me is effectively a thalamite. Mm. You know, I've met thalamites who've never even heard of Alistair Crowley and I would define them as thalamites. Because they understand that naturally, they understand it in their heart, and that's that's fine by me. I'm totally willing to accept that. I mean, I do think why thalamia is important is because it makes sense in the modern world. You know, I'm not a thalamite because I believe that some big powerful god came down from heaven and zapped Alistair Crowley in the head. I personally don't care whether, you know, Crowley got zapped on the head or he made it all up as he went along. I don't care. What I care about is that I can live my life to the fullest. Mm. And to me, Thelema is the philosophy and the spiritual system that allows me to do that. And it allows me to do that in conjunction with the people around me, with the environment around me. And I think that as the world changes, in this modern world that we have, of virtual reality, of mass mass communication, easy transport, um, Thalema just makes sense. Mm. Oh well. Uh, before I let you go, actually, uh, just to sort of clarify some of the point, we've been talking about the OTO and the AA. I mean, could you explain kind of briefly what they are and what the differences are between them? Because I think a lot of people tend to get the two mixed up, and they're actually uh, mm. yeah, mutually exclusive. Yeah, well, they're two completely separate orders, uh, which have nothing to do with each other. I mean, they're they're both they're both thalamic, and they were both started by Alistair Crowley. They're both found, or, or headed by Alistair Crowley at one point, but um, neither of them is headed by Alistair Crowley now, um, and they both are very much their own thing. I mean, the AA, as I said, is very much in the mold of the Golden Dawn. It started as a Golden Dawn spinoff and uses the Golden Dawn uh, grade system. Um, and it's very much involved with um, what uh, uh, Dan Gunter has called the inward journey. Um, it's about uh, the individual's understanding of himself in a better way. Uh, or in, and, and its main principles are contacting the Holy Guardian Angel, which we talked about earlier. Mm. And that, that's one of the main uh, things that members of the AA aspire to um, is contacting their Holy Guardian Angel and also in what they call the crossing of the abyss, that is 
effectively the the dissolution of the self as separate from the rest of the universe mm. to give it you know i don't want to go into that too deeply but that's kind of what it's about so that's really what the AA is about mm. and um whereas the OTO um is a very different organization with a very different uh, set of ideologies and or it's still thalamic but it has a different set of ways of work i mean the OTO works it's a very strongly initiatory system. Uh, it's very community focused. It works a lot. You know, I mean, you'll see the OTO everywhere. Um, it's still, you know, the initiations are extremely powerful. And one of the things I love about the OTO, the initiations, are some of the best things that Crowley ever wrote in his life, in my opinion. Uh, they have a very profound effect on people, and uh, uh, certainly on myself. Um, and the, so the OTO initiatory system really teaches uh, uh, each person a lot about their place in the world and uh, how they can relate to themselves and the environment in a much uh, more efficient manner, shall we say. Mm. And um, the OTO also has a much stronger social function. Um, one of the branches of the OTO is the EGC, the Ecclesia Gnostica Catholica or Gnostic Catholic Church. And the Gnostic Catholic Church is effectively um, the main ch uh, outward church of the layman, if you like, mm. um, which I love. I think it's a wonderful thing. I'm very happy that uh, we have uh, a very a formal religious system. Um, I'm very happy that I can, uh, you know, when when uh, you know when people at work ask me what church I go to, I can say I go to the uh, the Gnostic Church. Um, that's a good thing. Mm. I'm very happy that um, children, uh, or you know, that people can get married in our church. I'm very, I'm, I'm not happy when when someone dies, but I'm happy that they can have a funeral, a thalamic funeral. Uh, I've actually performed very several thalamic weddings and, unfortunately, a thalamic funeral, and um, it was very important to me that we had a strong serious religious basis in order to uh, celebrate those events mm. uh, in, a, in, a, in a spiritual manner. Yeah, it's interesting. So, I mean, one thing quickly as well is the AA and the Golden Dawn, one other big difference between the two would have been also, I believe that the AA, as a member, you tend to only know the person above you and the person below you, as it were. The um, You'd know the teacher. So, the, so they tell me, but yeah, that, yeah, well... I mean, I'm not an active member of the AA uh, at the moment, so um, I don't want to talk too much for the AA. No, no, no. But um, having said that, um, the AA does have a principle that members of the AA are supposed to talk about their association of the AA widely. Um, and Crowley certainly talked about his membership of the AA all the time, yeah. as did many of the as did many of the other. Uh, early members of the AA. I mean, everybody in the AA uh, in the early days knew everybody else in the AA. Mm. Um, um, so, you know, make of that what you will. Yeah. Well, uh, Rodney, thanks a lot for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. If people want to find you on the web, where can they, uh, where can, where can they turn their browsers to? Well, they can type Rodney Orpheus into Google and come up with about 17,000 hits. But <laughs> RodneyOrpheus.com is always a good start. Um, easy enough to remember. Uh, there's a lot of my stuff up there, and there's a lot of links. I mean, you can find me on Facebook, Live Journal, Twitter, 
just Rodney Orpheus on anything will get you <laughs> anywhere. And do feel free to you know, friend me on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. Um, I'm always happy to meet new people. It's a good thing. And then you can listen to my ramblings all day long. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you said you've written a book, uh, Abrahadabra. Have you, do you have any other uh, books on the go? Yes, I do have a new book coming. Um, it's almost finished. And it has been almost finished for the last couple of months. I've actually been working on it for well over a year, seriously. I mean, I've had been working on it in my head for some time before that. It's pretty much finished now. I'm just doing the last topping and tailing and getting the last illustrations finished because I want to have lots of pictures in it. Pictures are good. Mm. Um, and I've got uh, so it's going to be great. I'm very, very happy with it. I'm not going to tell you what it is or what it's about yet because I hate talking about work in progress. Mm. Really hate it. Ah. Um, but it will be out at the hopefully start of next year. And it is about Thalema and uh, Crowley work. And I'm really happy with it. I mean, people have been asking. You know, I did Abrahadabra many, many years ago. And people have been asking me practically since the day it came out. Please do another book. Please do another book. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to be one of these guys who just keeps churning books out all the time uh, for no apparent, no good reason. Uh, it's a lot of occult authors doing, putting out stuff they shouldn't be putting out. Mm. With the obvious exception of Lon Duquette, who just keeps turning out amazing work all yeah, the time. Yeah. We so, love Lon. We've had him on the show many times. Yeah, he's. Yeah. I'm a. I'm just such a huge fan of Lon. He's he's a great guy, and his works are amazing. Um, but. Uh, so I spent a lot of time thinking about what I wanted to, to to follow up with, and it's very different, but I'm very, very happy with it. So hopefully, uh, maybe in a few months' time, I can come back again, and we'll talk a little bit about what's in that book. Definitely, definitely. So um, one thing I always forget to kind of ask our guests, uh, especially when we've been covering a specific thing, is if you were to recommend a good biography about Crowley, which one would you choose? Um, Richard maybe- Kaczynski's Per Durabo. Um uh, Richard is is Richard's a very good friend of mine. I love Richard. His books are excellent. His research is impeccable. I mean, Richard uh, it spends so much time. Again, he's a real perfectionist. He spends a lot of time making sure everything is absolutely the way it should be. And his biography of Crowley Perdurabo um, is is brilliantly researched. It's really well written. And of course, the other thing is that Richard is uh, an OTO member and a Thelemite. He actually understands what Crowley's talking about, and a lot of the and the other Crowley biographies don't really understand where Crowley was coming from. Um, so Richard's is uh, one of the, the few books that really gets what Crowley is about. Uh, I definitely recommend it very highly. And we'll put a link Another to- book that that I that on that that I do also recommend that a lot of people never think about is a book called The Eye and the Triangle. By Israel Regardi. Excellent book. Um, I love that. Book. Yeah, um, it's a great book. Uh, it's it's very interesting because it's not really so much a biography of Crowley as uh, a psychological uh, a psychological biography. It's it talks about what went on in Crowley's head. I mean, Regardi knew Crowley personally. Regardi was Crowley's secretary, and really worked a lot in in, in Crowley's system. And I think he gets a very interesting aspect of Crowley in that book. So it's well worth reading as well. Yeah. But I think uh, Richard Kaczynski's book is definitely the way to go if you want a biography. Excellent. We'll, we'll put links to both of those up on the on the site. Okay. And, of, and, of course, and of course, if you want a beginner's book about Thelema, 
This guy called Rodney Orpheus wrote one. So ah, then there you go. We'll put a link up to that as well then. <laughs> but thanks, good idea. Thanks a lot for coming on. I really appreciate it. It's uh, been good, great chatting to you, and we'll have to have you back on soon. Well, great. I'd love to do it. This has been very enjoyable. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks, cheers. And uh, here's uh, me with my uh, masculine alter ego, Daddy Tank, introducing my space heroes in my tinny comedy cupboard. Heroes 11 with me, Daddy Tank. A recap on everything we've achieved together so far this week. So, Twee and the K-Mesons with Preset Love. Zeno Bratherin with Live and Direct. Yellow then Blue, The Black Rose. And Rana Sinclair with Alphabet.
Now it's a very good one. It's a uh... <laughs> oh, very good, very good. <laughs> it was a, a blast from the past. That one, I, I recognise all of those uh, those musos on that one. Oh, you remember? yeah. Well, they're the, they're the ones that I, um, apart from, I've already banged on about dissolved um, enough. I think <laughs> uh, he can't pay me anymore. So um, there is one guy I'd like to play again called Pang, who I played early on, who's amazing, but he's he he didn't EP. Um, and has just not done anything since. He sort of says he's doing something, but he lives in Brazil, and I think he's got better things to do in Brazil mm. than make dark uh, electronic music. But yes, um, Zeno Bathroom um, is brilliant. Um, this The track I played is 
um, live and direct is him. Um, oh shit! What, freestyling. Almost forgot my rap terminology then as well. Oh god! Um, he's freestyling old. over. Uh, I think what is a live band, um, and it's seven minutes, and he, he's just amazing. It's a brilliant, brilliant th- thing to listen to. Yeah, yeah. Um, good. What rapper? What rapper do you know? List mentions Nils Bohr and. Um, <laughs> you know he's just he's just really talented really great guy um who else who the hell else did i play uh, rally sinclair um a, bit, a little bit of nepotism he's actually my brother um but he's scottish which is weird because i'm not <laughs> it's, it's complicated but um he, he used to be in a band called the breakers who are doing quite well they got in the enemy and stuff and then they broke up because they went to university uh they were one of those young bands with uh, the they were called the breakers but he's gone on to do sort of acoustic folky stuff and um he's he's good at it hmm. and oh twiggy in the k-mesons i've banged on about him a bit uh, played a bit of him another guy yellow than blue who i played relatively early on and i just didn't know how great he was um but he's got a couple of eps available through itunes um go and check his myspace page he's like a break core jazz guy he plays all his own instruments all his own instruments uh, other people's instruments <laughs> uh, guitars flutes you name it uh, but over the top of really uh, really good dark break core and um really good really good stuff so it's like a recap yeah of all the stuff that's not getting enough exposure yeah so the interview today i felt it went really well uh, i think rodney's a particularly good guest actually and we're definitely gonna have to have him back on would you not agree oh yeah def- well we did you know we, there was a whole uh, other part of his career that i would know a bit more about um but yeah even that you know his considerable contribution to the OTO and all, all that side of things on his massive CD CV makes him a definitely a really interesting guy. There were a couple of questions um, I didn't want to ask during the interview because you know you had you had control of it. But um, would you say Alistair Crowley was becoming more relevant or less relevant, or do you think he's just a kind of like a fixed kind of a a thing now within within um, that that side of magic, Crowleyan magic? Um, I don't know. I'd say he's he's one of those guys that just turns up all the time. So it's really hard to tell, really. He's definitely. I mean, he'll always be known as you know one of the most influential magic characters. That's for sure. Um, as and I, he, it kind of, sort of it's sort of weird. He sort of appears every now and then uh, in popular culture as well. So it's just yeah, he's one of those kind of reoccurring characters more than anything in in, in that terms. But. Uh, yeah, but I mean, obviously, I mean, magic-wise, he's responsible. I mean, he's got a reputation as being, this, you know, the wickedest man in the world and all this kind of stuff. But it doesn't really often get enough credit for the kind of what he did for, um, you know, for magic and things like bringing, you know, helping bring Buddhism across to the UK, all that kind of thing. So it's a. Uh, this is it. I mean, I know about him, but, um, but I knew about him quite early on as well. And you know, when I was a teenager, but through Iron Maiden, which is you know how unfortunately, well, unfortunately or unfortunately, he makes a difference. But oh, it's no, how no. an awful lot of people know. He's like the you know the pop icon of magic, if you like. Yeah. Um, but that and doesn't actually, necessarily that that doesn't necessarily account. Uh, those are the sort of people that would bring him to, you know, major attention. But. I was wondering whether that sort of affected how actual people that practice magic would look at him now. No, I don't think so. Not anymore. I mean, interesting you should say that because if you go to sittingnow.co.uk, our site, um, there's uh, there was a film released uh, recently co-written by Bruce Dickinson from Iron Maiden mm. called Chemical yeah, yeah. Wedding, yeah. <laughs> which I wouldn't recommend as your first uh, port of call for... Uh, <laughs> 
for checking out Crowley, but I think Rodney's suggestions are really good. And, uh, you know, for books, it's definitely The Israel Guardian and The Triangle. It's the first book I read about Crowley. Uh, and that was recommended to me by Robert Anton Wilson. So uh, couldn't get a better two recommenders <laughs> in that case. So, uh, yeah. recommenders, recommenders to pronouncers. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, the in-joke continues. So. <laughs> uh, we've got recommenders now. <laughs> we can Definitely. roll with that. Oh, one thing. Uh, no, the other thing I wanted to ask, actually, was, um, he says, seizing control of the podcast, <laughs> um, was there's a, quite a strong link of hallucinogenic and uh, opiate drugs throughout the history of magic, it seems, mm. and in developing the philosophy of magic. Um, and how is that viewed? I mean... Is it is it something that is part of? Obviously, I'm not saying it's part of. You know, a handbook. It says go out and do heroin or do this or do you know do acid or whatever. But is it acknowledged that it, there's a fair old whack of drug culture in there? And is it kind of seen as a a, a positive input? It depends which group. I think that's the right. from what I've looked at myself. Um, it, yeah, it really does depend which group. I know within Philema and the ATO, it would probably be. Uh, if that was your will to do that kind of thing or you know you felt that that mm. was helping you then you know I guess do it but I mean I could be completely wrong there but um, but I know that there are other organizations that absolutely abhor dr- the use of drugs they see them as uh, they'll see magic as you know your own drug in in certain ways mm. it's kind of hard yeah. to, it's, it's too broad I mean there's so many different groups that practice different have different morals and values and so forth but uh Anyway, uh, one thing I forgot to say in the intro, which I'm desperately trying to get people to do more. Apparently, you get way more listeners if you have reviews on iTunes, and we have got reviews, um, but we haven't got enough. I want more. My unquenchable first, unquenchable first, rather for uh, reviews must continue now. Um, so yeah, if you listen to the show, I mean, we put a lot of you know time and effort into doing this, and um, it would help us no end if you could just write you know a sentence and you know mark us. We're not saying give us a good review, just a review would be good, you know. Um, and it, basically, it helps us, uh, you know, get some attention on online and uh, especially on we, we thrive on attention. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why, why do you think we do? Why the fuck week? do you think we do? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, so yeah, that would be you'd be helping us out, you know, a load that way. And, and I've done, I've done a, I did mine. Oh, yeah, Months back in the day. Yeah. Have you done yours, Ken? I can't review my own show. That's, uh, that's, of course you can. That's ghost, well, I, man. I, I did it, and now I'm in it. So. <laughs> ah, there you go. Yeah. So you may even end up in the show if you review us. There you go. What better incentive could you possibly want? But, yeah, if you want to check us out on the web, it's uh, sittingnow.co.uk or .com, depending on whichever tickles your fancy, really. They both work. Um, if you want to email me, uh, you know, suggest shows, tell us how crap we are, tell us how good we are. Uh, it's ken at sittingnow.co.uk um, uh, daddy tank at sittingnow.co.uk is it daddy tank or is it yeah it is yeah. daddy tank at yeah. daddy tank at sittingnow.co.uk that's a real bastard to say um, but yeah I, I actually realised the reason that you haven't been receiving emails is because I forgot to reset it up so I have reset it up now and it is forward into your regular email account so if you want to get in contact with uh, Kim here about any uh, him that's how you do that uh, we also do another show called Behind Closed Doors. In fact, we're about to record it now. The magic of radio ruined. But um, yeah, so uh, check that out as well. It's really good if you enjoy kind of obscure underground, but we think good music. Um, give that a, give that a go as well. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll see you next week. And I say that in parentheses. Yeah, exactly.